Good evening. My name is Scott Lee, and I am an alcoholic. And uh, very honored and thrilled to be here. I want to thank Lee and John and everyone who was involved in putting this thing together. It's such a privilege for me to be doing anything with this wonderful fellowship. And I'd like to open with a uh, quotation from Lois Wilson, co-founder of Alan. Any Alanons here? Hands. Thank you for coming. Certainly honored by your presence. Thank you for coming. And uh, your co-founder, Lois, was asked one time what she did in the moment of silence before the serenity prayer. And she said, I invite God to the meeting. And that was powerful for me. And it's not that I don't believe God's here. I do believe that. But something special happens for me when I stop and honor that presence. And that's what I do in that moment of silence. And so in a few minutes, I'm going to ask for another one. And I'm going to ask you, if you would, to invite your God to join us, to fill this room with love and to bless us all with open hearts. Uh, Bob and I, hopefully, that he would speak through our hearts, or in worst case, that we would, and you, that you might hear through yours. We use in, uh, in recovery the language of the heart, which I find to be different from the language of the gutter, in my case. Yeah. And uh, I can report progress, not perfection. But um, it might be that there's someone here who doesn't have a God, or you have one you're afraid of, or something's not working for you. And if that's your case, I'd like to invite you to borrow mine for this time we're together tonight. Um, you can refer to him as the God of Scott's limited understanding. Get you off on the right foot. And uh, there's a wonderful line on page uh, 46 in the text. It says, it was impossible for any of us to fully define or comprehend that power which is God. So I'm comfortable not understanding. It's okay. So let's take a few moments, if you would, and uh, acknowledge the presence of deity and ask for open hearts. Amen. Amen. Bob and I are going to take turns tonight. He's actually going to take the first session. He has a beautiful opening prayer, and uh, he's going to do about half of the first session, then I'll be back. We're going to take fairly short breaks this evening, about 10 minutes, uh, so that we can get our sessions in. There'll be longer breaks tomorrow, I promise. And uh, what an honor it is to share a podium with one of the great storytellers and teachers and uh, a guy that's touched my life a lot of ways, and I won't go on about that, but uh, my friend Bob. My name is Bob Darrell, and I'm certainly alcoholic. It's good to be here. Would you join me in a prayer I'd like to use for these workshops? Lord, help me to set aside everything I think I know about you, everything I think I know about myself, everything I think I know about others, and everything I think I know about my own recovery, all for a new experience in you, Lord, a new experience in myself, a new experience in my fellows, and a much-needed new experience in my own recovery. Amen. Amen. One of the reasons I really like that prayer is that sometimes the things that are blocking me are the things from last week or last month or last year that worked to keep me closed-minded to learning anything new. I want to welcome everybody here. Uh, I'm excited about being here. We, Scott and I did a, a workshop late, earlier in the year here, and uh, we were right in the eye of Charlie, the hurricane. We called it the uh, Ain't It Grand, the Wind Stop Blowing Workshop of Alcoholics Anonymous. And it was, uh, it was kind of frightening. It was, uh, 
and exciting at the same time. And I'm glad to be here, and nothing's rattling, and, uh, you know, it's good. It's very, very good. Uh, what we're going to try to do this weekend is really the only thing any of us can do in Alcoholics Anonymous uh, is as honestly as we can share our experience with this process in this book. And that's always been the, the power of Alcoholics Anonymous is one alcoholic honestly sharing what he has done and what happened to them and how they felt so that another alcoholic can connect and, and secretly inside themselves say, I'm like that. I'm going to go that way. Uh, and maybe if something this weekend that comes from my experience or Scott's experience is beneficial to you, coupled with what we're going to go through in the book, that's good stuff for us. Uh, then we get to feel useful. Um, I'm, we're gonna, I'm going to talk a little bit about step one. The big book of Alcoholics Anonymous spends more time talking about step one in the working text than any other step. And Bill's in the 12 by 12 says it's the only step that we ever have to take 100%. Uh, it's a difficult step for guys like me. It seems like there's everything in me is against the surrender to step one, my absolute powerlessness and inability to manage my own life. It's such a difficult step for some of us. It kills some of us. We can't get it. We can't surrender. We can't really own the powerlessness. It doesn't matter what happens to us. We can't give up. And I'm going to start talking a little bit about some of the stuff that Silkworth talks about. In the big book on page XXVIII in the fourth edition, and the page numbers I'm going to quote are going to be page numbers out of the fourth edition. I know there are some discrepancies, and you'll have to fend for your own if you have a third edition. Uh, I don't have one here to give you. It may be one number off in the third edition. I'm not sure. But Silkworth, at the top of the page, starts to talk about some information that was crucial to Bill Wilson's ability to be effective. And as a matter of fact, until Bill started using some of the information that Silkworth talked about, he spent his first six months trying to help other alcoholics with no avail. And it wasn't until he met Dr. Bob Smith and he started talking about some of the things that Silkworth talks about to Bob that he started to make a connection. And Silkworth talks about how we're powerless over alcohol in ways that it never would have occurred to me. Uh, and he talks about things that I just, I didn't get. I didn't get for a long time. In this first paragraph, he says, we believe, and so suggested a few years ago, that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics, that's me, I'm a chronic alcoholic. I don't have acute alcoholism. I have chronic alcoholism. And there's a big difference. Um, some people in Alcoholics Anonymous, I think, or from listening to them, have acute alcoholism. Their alcoholism exists only while they're drinking. And then once they put the plug in the jug, they're fine. And they don't really even need AA. They don't really need the steps, really. They're the person that it talks about on the bottom of page 20 and the top of 21 when it talks about the hard problem drinker. But I'm not that guy. I'm the guy that suffers and will always have this thing called alcoholism. It will always require treatment. It's a chronic illness just like diabetes. Uh, it's not, not like pneumonia where you load up on the antibiotics and you no longer have pneumonia. It's a chronic illness. And he says that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics, guys like me, is the manifestation of an allergy. 
And then he starts to he starts to begin to get into the description of the of this manifestation of this allergy. He says that it's this phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. So what Silkworth is trying is trying to say is something that I couldn't get. He's saying that I have an allergic reaction to alcohol. But unlike a lot of allergies, let's say if you're allergic to strawberries, and you eat strawberries, you break out in hives. I don't break out in hives. I break out in a phenomenon of craving. And it's an allergic reaction. It's a phenomenon because it doesn't occur in most people. It only occurs in these chronic alcoholics of my type. And I, I started coming to Alcoholics Anonymous in the early 70s as a young kid in institutions. And I remember hearing members of Alcoholics Anonymous talking about this phenomenon of craving and sitting there, and I don't get it. I mean, I drink and get drunk, and I'm in a lot of trouble. Yeah, 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 but it's not a craving. I saw Days of Wine and Roses in the Lost Weekend. I don't drink and claw the walls for a drink. I, I don't get it. I don't, it's not a craving. But I'll tell you, a funny thing about a craving is you don't realize you suffer from it until it's no longer satisfied or it's interrupted. Everyone in this room right this second is in the grip of a craving you don't know you have. Because it's satisfied, and that's the craving to breathe air. But if someone were to slip up behind you and put a plastic bag over your head, you would instantly realize, I got this craving to breathe air because you can no longer satisfy it. And one of the difficult things for me was to see the phenomenon of craving because I was the kind of drunk that avoided situations intuitively. Not because I thought I had alcoholism, it was just an intuitive thing where I could only get two or three drinks and couldn't get any more. I ain't going there. Now, I wouldn't have thought, it wasn't because I thought I was an alcoholic. It was just an intuitive instinct. It was an instinct with me. I remember in junior high school being invited over to a guy's house to watch some games Saturday afternoon. His parents were gone. He had a six-pack of beer for a couple of us. I passed. <laughs> if he'd had four or five cases, I'm, I'm your man. I'm right there with you. Right? And so I couldn't see the phenomenon of craving because... 99% of my drinking life, I was able to satisfy it once I started. And then I'm sitting in a meeting back in the mid-70s, and I'm listening to a woman share her experience that she had at a dinner party, and all of a sudden, I got it. And I remembered something that had happened to me when I was 18 years old. And what I remembered was an incident where I was dating this gal and she invited me over to her parents' house for the evening to meet her family for a dinner. And I went over there trying to be a good guy. And I, you know, I've never liked being under the microscope. I've always been overly self-conscious anyway, right? But I'm trying to be a good guy and go. And I walk in there and I sit down at the dinner table and, you know, I'm trying to be polite and everything, feeling that awkward apartness that guys like me often feel. And they bring out a bottle of wine. Now, not a big bottle of wine like I would have bought. They brought out a little bottle of wine, right? And now, I'm 18 years old. I want you to understand something. At 18 years old, you could have put me on a lie detector and said, Bob, is there any way in the world you could possibly have alcoholism? I would have said absolutely not, and the lie detector would have said I was telling the truth. But I had alcoholism, and alcoholism doesn't care what you think. If you have it, you have it. And I had it. And I sat at that dinner table, and they poured me a glass of wine. I drank that glass of wine 
rather quickly. I've always drank a little quickly. I think evaporation's a childhood issue with me or something. I don't know, but I, I've always drank quickly. I just, that way, I drink with a little bit of urgency. And I've, uh, I've gotten another glass of wine, killed the second glass of wine. They're still sipping on the first glass. The bottle's dead. I'm sitting there, i got two glasses of wine in me. I don't know nothing about alcoholism. I, I'm just sitting there, and I want another glass of wine. I finally I said to him, boy, that, God, that was good wine. Do you have any more? And they said, no, Bob, we don't. And they went back to talking about Vietnam and sports and all this stuff. And I'm sitting there. You know how you talk to yourself in your head? It's getting a little panicky in there. And it's just the chatter's getting a little more hectic. And I, I finally blurted out. I said, you know, I sure like beer. And they said, well, that's nice, Bob. We don't have any beer. We, next time you come over, we'll get you a six-pack of beer or something. They went back to talking. And I'm sitting there, and I'm spinning in my head. And I don't know what's wrong with me. And I'm antsy, and I can't. I finally can't take it. I excuse myself from the dinner table. I, I go off to their bathroom. I lock the door like a maniac. I go through the cabinets, found a bottle of cough medicine that was 35% alcohol with codeine and terpenhydrate, which is always a bonus, <laughs> and sat there on the edge of that bathtub and chugged that bottle of cough medicine, and all the voices in my head went, <sighs> and I could think straight. And I could sit there and I could come up with a, a reasonable story. And I went back out to that dinner table and I explained to them about something that I had forgotten about that I had to take care of. And I was so polite and so sorry I had to leave. And I went and got in my car and drove down their street 20, 25 miles an hour like you're supposed to. And then I turned the corner and got out of sight and drove 70 miles an hour like a crazy person to get to my friend Brett's house who I knew had an open bar in the basement because I lit something inside of me that demanded attention. And I didn't know that it was the phenomenon of craving. I didn't know I had alcoholism. I wouldn't even suspect I have alcoholism for several, several years. But I was the only one at that dinner table that night with alcoholism. Those other people had alcoholism. We'd all been in that bathroom looking through those cabinets. <laughs> but I had something that got touched that need, needed attention. And I could, I've had that all my life. I have never not had that allergic reaction to alcohol. Never once. I have never once been sitting in a bar and, and had the reaction to alcohol and drinking and the experience that a lot of non-alcoholics have. The Al-Anons in here have probably had this experience. I've watched my sister, who's not an alcoholic, have that experience. I've been drinking for an hour, starting to get pretty good buzz on. Have the bartender say, Bob, would you like another drink? Never once sat there in my whole life and thought to myself, honestly, nah, this is just right. <laughs> Never once. It's always one more, one more, one more. I used to sit in meetings and listen to all the people in AA talk about the different things that alcohol made them feel like. Some people, it made them feel like Fred Astaire. Other guys made them feel like John Wayne. Some people made them feel like they fit. Some people made them feel funny or smart or invulnerable or bulletproof. And, and all of that stuff was true some of the time. But there was only one thing that was true all of the time. Every drink of alcohol I've ever had has made me feel like I'd like to have another drink of alcohol. And that is the phenomenon of craving. My sister doesn't get that. When she takes about three, two or three drinks and the buzz starts to hit her, you know that feeling, that warm glow that starts to come over you? 
in her chemistry, in her wiring, that feeling goes, whoa, this could get out of control here. And she shuts it down. I've watched her. I've watched her, her eyes get that look and she's feeling that buzz and she, gets, she feels like she's losing control. I get that exact same feeling and that thing lights me up and in my wiring it goes, oh yeah, oh yeah, come on, come on. I can't get enough because I get a feeling like I'm about to get control. I, this, this phenomenon of craving, I can't ever get enough of it. What it I used to think that it, it got me there. You know where there is, that place where you fit and the magic and you're a part of and you're funny and deep and, and brilliant and all. It, but it doesn't really get me there. What it does is it gets me right to the edge of there where I can almost touch it with a sense and a belief that I'm about to be there maybe on the next drink, so keep them coming, keep them coming. And I never do really get there, but I get so close it makes me crazy. I get so close I can feel like I'm about to touch some kind of level of magnificence that will blow the world's mind. You know, I just, just almost there. And I never get there. And I can't drink enough. And I drink at that. And I drink away from me. And it's, it's never enough. Silkworth goes on to say these allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. Now, this is a little controversial. And Alcoholics Anonymous has singleness of purpose. We are here for alcohol. But I'll tell you something that I've watched over the last 10 years a lot of solid members of Alcoholics Anonymous who came here suffering from alcoholism, I've seen them die and relapse, and it started with other kinds of stuff, medications. And I think it's important for every, every guy like me to realize and, and own, what is this? What, what are the things that will do the same thing for me that alcohol does? What can't, what, as Silkworth says, what can I ever safely use in any form at all? What will also put me off on, run me out of control in a run I can't get off of? What will start me off? I can't safely use that stuff in any form at all. And once having formed the habit and found they cannot break it, once having lost their self-confidence, their reliance upon things human, their problems pile up on them and become astonishingly difficult to solve. And that's really true. It's true almost to the point where the wreckage I incur from trying to juggle this stuff and keep the party going gets, just buries me alive to the point where I would come as a, as a perpetual newcomer through the early 70s. I would come to meetings and people would say, you know, your problem's alcohol and alcoholism. And I would think, yeah, but man, I got problems everywhere. I got police problems. I got family problems. I got emotional problems. I got mental problems. I got a head that won't leave me alone, that just, just, just on me all the time. I got all kinds of problems, and to the point where I'm up to here with all this other stuff, and the alcohol and alcoholism almost seems insignificant. I, it's almost like if I could solve all of this stuff, the alcohol would probably go away. And so what happens is I start attacking all this stuff and I never touch the alcoholism. I never work the steps. I never access a power greater than myself. I never help others. I never make amends. I never clear any of the wreckage out of my life. I never do anything except try to make myself better. And I relapse continually because I'm not treating, I'm doing, treating everything else other than my alcoholism. I think to go on a run, if you're in the later days of alcoholism, 
for guys like me, it's almost like living in a station wagon 24-7. And you're partying, and problems come up, family engagements, birthdays, funerals, court dates, too busy, throw it in the back. IRS, too busy, partying, throw it in the back of the station wagon. A death, I should go to that funeral with the family, ah, too busy, throw it in the back. I'll, Christmas, I should get some presents, ah, throw it in the back. And what happens is when I get finally forced into abstinence and I get sober, it's like running that station wagon into a brick wall and in slow motion out of the back comes all this stuff. And you're, I'm 30 days sober, my mind's starting to clear up and it's like, buried alive. Barely, and you, know, you talk to these old timers, they'll just say, get a shovel. And you start working the steps and starting to pick away at the wreckage that I've been incurred out of my effort to live on self-will and run the show myself. Bottom of page XXVII, Silkworth touches on some very important things. See, if it was just the phenomenon of craving that, that was the beast here, then, then detoxes would turn out winners because they would educate a guy like me that I shouldn't pick up the first drink. I would get it. And never pick up the first drink. That Nancy Reagan just say no program would work for me if that was all there was. But I suffer from a spiritual malady. And what that really means is that when I stop drinking, I, I, ain't, too, I ain't right. Now, I don't know why I ain't right, but I ain't right. And Silkworth starts to talk about this at the bottom of the page. He says, men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. I, I drink because I need the effect produced by alcohol because without it, I, I'm a bump on a log. That's my big secret. Is I, no matter, in the face of all the damage I've done, I still have always liked myself half lit up than I ever liked myself sober. I need the effect. And this sensation is so elusive that while they admit it is injurious, as we sit in bar rooms for years going, you know, I really got to quit this stuff. While they admit it is injurious, they cannot, after a time, differentiate the true from the false. And then he says something that is carried through my sobriety and is always true for me. He says, to them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. I always just adjust to wherever I am and think that this is status quo, like this is right, as if it's I'm, as screwed up as I am is normal, Right? Uh, and my big secret is that the only reason, the only time I ever really felt normal was in the early days of my drinking when I was drinking. I'd never felt normal sober. I always felt like I was doing time. I always felt like I was out of place. I always felt that there was something wrong with me that I just can't seem to put my finger on. And none of the psychiatrists could put their finger on it really. They could dance around it. But nobody could ever really put their finger on what was really wrong with me. And so I drink. And then this is, the, this is where he hits me. He says, they are restless, they are irritable, and they are discontented unless they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort, which comes at once by taking a few drinks. Drinks they see others taking with impunity, which means without punishment, without consequences. So for all practical purposes, my alcoholism begins where the bottle ends. I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous because of the membership requirement in the third tradition in the long form. Because it says in the long form, membership should include all who suffer from alcoholism. The short form, it says, 
the only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. I didn't come here because I had a desire to stop drinking. I had a desire to stay out of jail. I had a desire to not be sick. I had a de- but not drink. You know what I really wanted more than anything? If God would have come to me at 30 days sober and said, Bob, I'll give you anything you want, I think I would have said, God, could you give me two years of drinking like I had when I was 18 years old? Give me that. You can kill me at the end of that. But give me those two years. Give me those two years. And the problem is I needed that so desperately because when I quit drinking, I was restless, I was irritable, and I was discontent. And I suffered from alcoholism. My spirit got sick. And I, I, I thirsted for the effects I had once found in four or five shots of Jack Daniels, where I, my spirit would come alive. Scott? Thank you. I, I thought it might be fun to, uh, to move on from where he was. For We don't seem to have a definition of alcoholism, but we do have some descriptions of the alcoholic uh, and of alcoholism, and I'm not going to try to get them all, but just to touch on a couple more that are particularly uh, poignant for me. And again, I am in also in a fourth edition. Uh, doctor's Opinion, Roman numeral 30, three X's. Toward about two-thirds of the way down the page, all these and many others have one symptom in common. Count them. One. Cannot start drinking without developing the phenomenon of craving. That's, that just really wraps it up for me. Page 21. And what a friend of mine calls the American numerals. First full paragraph. What about the real alcoholic? He may start off as a moderate drinker. He may or may not become a continuous hard drinker. But at some stage of his drinking career... He begins to lose all control of his liquor consumption once he starts to drink. This is one that's powerful for me. Page 24 in uh, italics. Squiggly writing in my home group, the uh, back room in Nashville. fact is that for most alcoholics, for reasons yet obscure, we have lost the power of choice and drink. So I don't choose not to drink. Apparently, I've lost the power to choose. It says, our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. We are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. We are without defense against the first drink. Yeah. And uh, the one they got me with, um, I was captured and put into treatment against my will through a series of misunderstandings and bad luck. And... Uh, <laughs> Summer of 1984 by a business partner who was a great communicator. He said, you're going to treatment right now or we're done. And um, I was sure I wasn't an alcoholic. Absolutely sure. I had, I had never had a blackout. I have never been arrested. I have no DUIs. I never drank in the morning. I didn't get drunk every time I drank. Um, I've never wrecked an automobile. Hadn't been fired from a job and married to the same woman for over 20 years. It was, I was living in a 4,000-square-foot house in a real nice part of town. I was making a lot of money, had a boat on the lake. I was driving a flashy car. Pretty hard to find alcoholism in there. I could define myself out of it very, very easily. But they nailed my shorts to the outhouse door on page 44 on the fourth line. If, when you honestly want to, you find you cannot quit entirely, or if, when drinking, you have little control over the amount you take, you are probably alcoholic. I am probably alcoholic because that's my story right there. I uh, lost count of the number of times I quit forever. I think it ran several thousand. 
As a matter of fact, I'm sure it did. And, and interestingly enough, who quit forever? Can I see the hands of those who ever quit forever? Okay. Didn't you mean it every time? Think about it. Didn't you actually mean it every time? I meant it every time. I meant it every time. Uh, especially as we were talking at dinner uh, when the heat was on. Uh, who, who, by the way, quit forever solemn oath on the Bible in front of witnesses more than once? <laughs> yeah, these are my people right here, Bob. I'll tell you. Yeah, uh, just for fun, who peed in the closet? Did you really? I never did that. I'm really embarrassed for you. That's. Uh... I'll tell you what. There's a difference between a fifth step and uh, sharing in a meeting. You might want to consult your sponsor before you start admitting to that kind of stuff again. Not. I, um, I, I I never did that. I will admit that I, my first wife is still unhappy about that coffee table that used to be in the living room. Okay, I'll give you that. And uh, I did that gag in a jail one night a couple of years ago, about 25 inmates, and one guy put up his hand, and I did that to him, and they, they, they laughed. They don't laugh in the jail much. They laughed that night. And when it, when it finally calmed down, he looked up at me, and he said, man, it wasn't a big deal, you know? It wasn't my closet. <laughs> It's a perspective thing. Uh, I had uh, I tell a little piece of my story. I got out of treatment in the summer of 84, and uh, within two months I'd done everything on my aftercare list except get a sponsor. Let's see if you can fill this in. Two-word fill-in-the-blank. I was so insane I was looking for a sponsor I could relate, relate to. Yeah, Ooh, wow. I'm so grateful that I did not find that. Because um, I had a terminal case of newcomer thinking. And I couldn't have related to anybody except somebody else with a terminal case of newcomer thinking. And we probably would have both died. And um, I was fortunate to have found a sponsor that I would obey, which is what I actually needed. Although I didn't realize it at the time. But I asked this guy because I wanted to feel like he looked. And uh, he gave me an assignment, which surprised me. Because I thought a sponsor is kind of like a big brother is going to show you the ropes and maybe fix your wife, loan you some money, that sort of thing. And... Uh, uh, we're going to talk about some of the things I was wrong about this weekend. That was one of them. And uh, he told me I was going to have to do the 12 steps. And I said, uh, I said, Jerry, I don't want to do the 12 steps. I'd like to recommend you be honest with your sponsor. And I said, I don't want to do the 12 steps. And he said, that's okay. I said, good. He said, as long as you do them. <laughs> Jerry, I don't think we're communicating. We are communicating, too. That's the definition. That was Jerry's definition of willingness. Willingness is when I do what my sponsor says, whether I want to or not. Definition, I haven't found a better one. And um, he said, do you ever try to get sober on your own? I said, yeah, well, a couple thousand times. He said, that was doing what you thought you should do and not doing what you didn't want to do. I said, yeah. He said, well, that didn't work. So maybe to get sober, you'll have to not do some things you'd like to do and do some things you'd rather not do. Man was dadgum hard to argue with. And um, he told me I was going to have to do the 12. He said... uh, he said, I'm going to give you the definition of the program. And to the end of his life, he said it was the best-kept secret we had. And the way we keep it secret, of course, we read it at almost every meeting. It's on page 59. Immediately before step one, it says, here are the steps we took. Y'all fill in the blank for me, which are suggested as a program of recovery. Yeah, no steps, no program, period. The steps are not part of the program. Steps are the program. The um, forward to the third edition, Roman numeral 22, XXII, in whatever edition you've got. Actually, if it's a third or fourth, this one's not in the second. 
just before the fourth of the fourth, just before the doctor's opinion. A little past halfway down the page, the basic principles of the AA program, it appears, hold good for individuals with many different lifestyles, just as the program has brought recovery to those of many different nationalities. Here it may be the most, for me, important phrase in the book, the 12 steps that summarize the program. I think that says that the 12 steps I see on the wall are a summary. That's what we called in school the cliff notes. Right? That's, that's for the guys trying to slide with a C- and just get out of here. I'm afraid to do that. I must win now. I've got to win this time. I cannot afford to not win now. And I think what that's telling me, that the 12 steps I see in the wall are a summary, is that the balance of this book, the rest of this is the full shot, and that's what I need. I've got to strive to get an A-plus and AA. I have to do that because I must win now. If I shoot for an A-plus and get a C, I'm going to be okay. If I shoot for a C and fall short, I could die. I could go to prison for a long time. So that was important to me, definition of the program. And then it was, this was explained to me by another one of my mentors. I think it was kind of interesting. He said the book mentions two fellowships, and they're quite different. The first one is mentioned at the bottom of this same page in the last paragraph. It says, in spite of the great increase in the size and the span of this fellowship, at its core it remains simple and personal each day somewhere in the world. Recovery begins when one alcoholic talks with another alcoholic, sharing experience, strength, and hope. That's what we're doing here tonight. This is a fellowship. And you are in the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous when you say you're in it. Nobody can throw you out. There is a second fellowship, and it's described on page 164. And it has entrance requirements a good bit more strict. Toward the bottom of the page, abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit. The fellowship of the Spirit has different entrance requirements. I'm going to read them again and see if they don't sound to you because they do to me like the steps in narrative form. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit. They, yeah, they rewrite this book all the time. Do you notice that? There's stuff in there that wasn't there last time you wrote it. Yeah, last time you read it. Yeah. Sorry, yeah, wrote it too. Um, this is one they added last summer, by the way. If you haven't caught it, it's also on page 164. Um, paragraph at the top. Still you may say, but I will not have the benefit of contact with you who write this book. We cannot be sure. God will determine that. So you must remember that your real reliance is always upon him. Here's the one they just added. He will show you how to create the fellowship you crave. Crave is a powerful word. Bob described it beautifully. I have craved fellowship all of my life. And I've never been able to have it. Because I don't know how, but as a small boy, I was convinced I was defective. There are things wrong with me that can't be repaired. I don't measure up, and I never will. And if you all ever find out who I really am, you'll run me off. That's the only thing I knew for sure when I got here. And so I became an actor, and I pretended to be whoever I thought the people right in front of me right now wanted me to be, which means I'm a different guy to everybody. And the biggest fear in my life is that people from different parts of my life, because I had some parts that were very different, people from different parts of my life be at the same place, same time, how would I act? Right? Because I've been act- I'm acting all the time. And it's because I know that if you ever get up close and really get a look at me, you'll run me off. Because a bunch of people like you who've got it together wouldn't hang out with an effective model like me if you knew. So I'm doing this act right here. Here's my act right here. I'm doing the act. I get to hang out with you. But I don't participate in fellowship because the act can't. 
because this part doesn't get to play. I flew a, a very highly classified, classified mission during Vietnam for the Air Force. I was a pilot. And I had a volunteer crew. I had a co-pilot, a navigator, and a flight engineer that rode with me. There were 10 crews on that base, all volunteers. Any one of the guys on my crew could have gone to the colonel and said, I want to ride with somebody else. They would have changed them that day. And there were men at all three of those crew positions bugging the guys on my crew to change so they could ride with me, and I never felt like I belonged. I never had fellowship there because I was doing the act. I was doing the act. The actors won't get sober. And I think that's what it says down there. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. It means I've got to come out and be real. And it's only the real me that can participate in the fellowship that I crave. Because if I don't get real with you, I don't get to participate in the fellowship. And that's in part, I think, what the 12 steps are about. So anyway, my sponsor told me I was going to have to do the 12 steps, and I told him I didn't want to. And uh, by the way, he gave me the definition of sponsorship. I'd like to give it to you. The, uh, The first 164 pages don't seem to carry the word sponsorship, or I haven't found it. But I did find the description on page 96 been talking for several pages about a 12-step call where you've talked about your drinking, somebody's talked about theirs, you laughed a little, you cried a little, you left them a book. Middle of page 96, suppose you're now making your second visit to a man. That was the first. Then it says, he has read this volume and says he is prepared to go through with the 12 steps of the program of recovery. I love the language. Take a look at it. I'll go through with the 12 steps. Okay, we'll settle for that. We don't have a lot of people coming through eager. You know, my life's running pretty good, but I heard you guys really had some great stuff over here, so I've come to A for a little growth and development. Would somebody coach me through the steps? Y'all getting those at your home group? We're not seeing them in mine. He'll go through. the. So for me, someone who is sponsorable has made an attempt to read this book and understands that the 12 steps are the program of recovery, and he's prepared to go through with them. And then I think it defines sponsor. It says, having had the experience yourself, you can give me much practical advice. What experience? The experience of going through the 12 steps. What advice? Advice on how to go through the 12 steps. Step 1, Section B says, my life's unmanageable. If I can't manage mine, I sure can't manage his. I don't know if he needs to buy a dog, get divorced, move to San Diego, quit his job. How would I know? I can't run my life. I sure can't run his. I do know that if he'll allow me to coach him through these 12 steps, he'll have a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. I know that. And I know that that will render him sober. I know that. I have personally not yet seen anybody in and out of the program. And I, and I, I don't mean to be controversial, but I think it's maybe the most important thing you'll hear from me this weekend. He, I've seen him in and out of the fellowship a lot. But I haven't seen anybody actually do the steps out of this book. Now, I use all the action words interchangeably do the steps work the steps take the steps go through the steps i really don't care it's not learn the steps understand the steps interpret the steps believe the steps not that haven't seen anybody actually do the steps out of this book while being coached by a sponsor who has already done them and then stay active carrying our message as step 12 says and drink again has anybody here seen that Hmm. no hands rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path our path is the 12 steps. I didn't read it, but on Roman numeral 22, I was going to tell you that a little bit further down. One of the difficulties that I had was releasing my grip on what I knew when I got here. Um, old ideas is the category. We'll go backwards from 143. 
They just added something on 143, by the way, about two weeks ago. I'll show you that, too. And be careful with 143. You can smudge that ink. may be wet if they just got to yours. And by the way, if you're anybody here sober less than a year, say hands. Wow. Thank you for coming. Is that fantastic? And, and congratulations to those of you who are involved in helping us folks get here. Good job, somebody. Wow. Anyway, if you're new and you haven't read the chapter to wives because you're not a wife and you haven't read the chapter to employers because you're not an employer, do yourself a favor. Well, ask your sponsor what they think about that, I guess. That's, that's a good idea. And by the way, if your sponsor disagrees with something I say here, your sponsor's right and I'm wrong. And I mean that. God bless his sponsorship. Don't you ever doubt it. Yeah. Page 143. Middle. If your man accepts your offer, it should be pointed out that physical treatment is but a small part of the picture. Though you are providing him with the best possible medical attention, he should understand that he must. There are no musts in the program, and this is one of them. That he must undergo a change of heart. To get over drinking will require. wonder how important that is. Require a transformation. That's a total change of thought and attitude. Here's the thing they just added. We all had to place recovery above everything. They just added that. I swear that wasn't there. Okay. Uh, Page 58. Four lines from the bottom. Fifty-eight. Four lines from the bottom. Some of us have tried to hold on to our old ideas, and the result was nil until we let go absolutely. Page 42. Eight lines from the bottom. It meant I would have to throw several lifelong conceptions out of the window. Page 27. Just about the dead center of the page. You just kind of put your finger right down the middle of the page. Ideas. It says, ideas, emotions, and attitudes which were once the guiding forces of the lives of these men are suddenly cast to one side, and a completely new set of conceptions and motives begin to nominate them. I think those pages all said the same thing. And what they said was, some of what I know for sure ain't so. And what I'm going to have to do is to release my grip on what I think I know for sure if I'm going to have a shot at this thing. Page 61. Have some fun with this one. This is one of my favorites. Slightly below halfway down the page in the middle, is he not a victim? See it? A delusion, by the way, is, is a false psychotic belief. Is he not a victim of the delusion that he can wrest satisfaction and happiness out of this world if he only manages well? See, I got here confused about the difference between pleasure and happiness. Pleasure is on the physical plane, and there's something out there that I can achieve or acquire or attain that will bring it to me for a limited duration. Happiness is on the spiritual plane. Happiness is in here, and it's a side effect of having a healthy relationship with God and with all of you. And that's in part what the 12 steps are about. I'm going to give you a couple examples. Play with me. Who, when you were a child, wanted a bicycle? You're sure if you got a bicycle, you'd be happy and you got the bike. Where are you? Are you happy? No? Well, let's try another one. Which of you guys wanted her, your girls weren't him, and you were sure if you got him, you'd be happy and you got him? Okay, I'm going to do you a favor. You could be sitting next to him, so I'm not going to ask. But... I think I made my point, don't you? Well, who was sure if you could get rid of them, you'd be happy, all right? God want, yes, yes, ma'am, thank you, yeah. Uh-huh. 
<laughs> Roman numeral uh, 30. That's probably close. No, 29. XXIX in the doctor's opinion. Make one little point, and we're going to take a break. When I started drinking at age 18, I got out with fraternity boys, and they started drinking beer, and I started drinking beer. When the second beer hit bottom, I got taller. Who got taller? Taller. Better looking. Better looking. Yes. Expert on many subjects. Yes. Uh Fantastic dancer. Yes. Able to talk to the opposite sex. Yes. Okay. And the biggest one, of course, is that I felt like I was as good as everybody else. Never have it. Yeah, and better than most. Thank you for the truth. Yes. And, and I'd never had that experience before. I'd always felt like I was defective. And something inside me, as Bob said, went, ah. Oh. And all of a sudden, I went from there. I'm afraid they'll find out who I am and run me off to, hmm, these turkeys are pretty lucky I'm here. <laughs> and that is an entire psychic change. Think about it. That's precisely what that is. Page Roman numeral 29, XXIX. About six lines down. This is repeated over and over. And unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, there's very little hope of his recovery. That's because what alcohol did for me was a badly needed entire psychic change. I needed one. And I still need one. So if I'm going to stay sober, I'm going to have to have another one. I could quit, as I told you, forever, which is you well know is somewhere between 20 minutes and about eight weeks. That's forever, right? Okay. The earth people are very confused about this forever thing. That goes well, a long time for them. And um, so I could quit, but I couldn't get on thirsty. The day was coming when I was going to get thirsty. Um, you know, I'm going to get fired. Um, I'm going to get her. Uh, the Redskins are going to play the Cowboys on, on Monday Night Football. S- something is going to happen, and I'm going to get thirsty again. And so if, if I'm going to stay, they're saying one day at a time, and I've been listening to that for 20 years. And I believe them, but what they really mean is one day at a time in a row. That's what they mean. All right? They're leaving that out, but that's what they mean. So I, I, I see that now. If I'm going to do one day at a time in a row, they're going to have to render me unthirsty. Page 60. For me, the most powerful promise in the text. 12. Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. doesn't say a result, it says the. That means one. My experience is that spiritually awakened people do not drink beverage alcohol, and they don't ever get thirsty. They don't ever get thirsty. Alcohol was my answer. It wasn't my problem. If I'm going to lay down that answer, I need a new answer. I need a new psychic change. And the 12th step tells me that the way I get it is by doing the other 11. That's what we're about. I've got 750 on my watch. I'm not kidding. We're going to take a 10-minute break and kick it back up again. Please. Hmm? Yeah. Yeah, we're going to... Bob, I'm still an alcoholic. A couple comments about the prayer at the beginning of the meeting. Uh, Help me to set aside everything I think I know. There's a, an old Buddhist proverb about uh, the wisdom of knowing the most important thing you'll ever know is that you don't know. And it's a story about this little old Chinese farmer who is very poor and he, does, he lives on this meager piece of land that is not even his. It's owned by a lord and he's allowed to live there and grow crops, but he has to tithe 
a large portion of his crops to this Lord in order to live there. And he lives there with his only son, and he only owns one thing in the whole world, one possession, it's a horse. And one day that horse runs off, and his friends and neighbors and family come over to console him, to tell him how horrible it is that his estate ran off. And he just shrugs his shoulders and says, I don't know if it's horrible. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. And they look at him like he's crazy. A couple days later, the horse returns, and it's leading a whole herd of wild horses. Now they come running over to congratulate him. He's the richest man in the valley. This is great. This is wonderful. And he shrugs his shoulders and says, I don't know if it's great. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. They look at him like, what a nutcase. You're now the richest. You don't even think it's good. A couple days later, his only son is trying to break one of the wild horses, and he's thrown, and he's crippled, and he can't walk, and he can't work. And his neighbors and friends come rushing over to console him, to tell him how awful this is. And he shrugs his shoulders and says, I don't know if it's awful. Maybe it is, and maybe it isn't. And they think, how cold, it's your only son. And he just keeps saying, I don't know. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. And a few days later, the Chinese army comes through the valley to force all the young men to go and fight in a battle where none of them would survive and they couldn't take the sun. See, the little old man know the most important thing he'd ever know is that he doesn't know. How many times do I prevent myself from moving on to something new because of the stuff I think I already know? It sometimes is the worst baggage in my life. I'm the kind of guy that I'll grab something that works and I'll beat it to death. And I can't learn anything new. And my big prayer is that God keeps me open. And I'm able to set aside everything that... And for any new experience that he would put down the pike for me. Because it's all good in the realm of the spirit, really. Uh, Scott talked about a touched on a page that I think is very important in this dynamic of, of powerlessness that we're talking about. On page 24, he talked about the paragraph that's in italics. And it says something very interesting here. It's a dynamic that really is what makes me a guy who relapses continually. I'm the guy that when I honestly want to, I can't quit entirely. And I mean entirely. I can't quit entirely. I can quit alcohol for periods of time if you keep me properly and deeply medicated, but I can't quit entirely. I can't. And once I start, I can't stop. And, and it's, it, this dynamic is part of the thing of relapse. It says, it says our... The fact is that most alcoholics, for reasons yet obscure, have lost the power of choice and drink. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. And then check this out. It says that we are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago We were without defense against the first drink. If I can't bring it into my mind as a deterrent with any force of the suffering of a week or a month ago, how am I going to do it for 25 years? I can't. And I think what what this is, it's a dynamic that's very similar to um, what women go through with childbirth. I think if experientially, if you could bring back the pain of the childbirth and really relive it, you'd never do that again. You'd never do that. But what happens is it's the same thing with drinking. I can remember the pain intellectually, but the intellectual memory has no force. It has no depth and weight. 
And as time goes on, it seems vaguer and hazier. And the further I get away from the last drink, the, 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 the more like smoke the memory is. I can remember the incidences intellectually, but I can't. There's no emotional impact behind them after a while. Now, at the same time that that's going on, as the, vague, the memory becomes vaguer and hazier, what Silkworth talks about is becoming more and more pronounced within me. I put down the last drink, and I enter into a state of abstinence, and the further I am away from the last drink, the more restless, the more irritable, the more discontented I become. And if you don't know what that means, it's restless means it's, I just I have an inability to, to feel settled anywhere. Do you ever watch a dog circling a room trying to find a spot to lay down? I'm a dog that can't find its spot. You know, just an aim, like it's over here, and I go over there, and eh, that ain't it. And then I go over here, and that ain't it either. I don't know where it is, but it ain't here. You know what I mean? It's just a restlessness, irritable. My, uh, I'm the kind of guy, I quit drinking, and I, I just no, notice acutely what's wrong with everybody. You know, I just... <laughs> And I want to tell them because they need to know. And if you're like that for a while, it's a lonely business being sober. Because uh, people irritate me. They rub me the wrong way. I, I just become painfully aware of how you're not doing it right. And I'm chronically malcontent. He says discontented. I, no matter what I bring into my life, the shine of it wears off so quickly. Scott was going through the thing about the questions about the bicycle and all. Did it make you happy? And did it? And I'm the case of the when eyes. It's I'm not happy, but when I get the promotion, when I get married, when I have kids, when I buy a house, when I get divorced, when I get rid of the kids. When I, it's always something that ain't now, right? It's always when I I will be happy. And then when I get to the thing is that it is for some reason I have an inability to. To have, to have any substance with that experience. The shine of stuff wears off so quickly for me. And it doesn't seem to be that way for other people. I, my parents lived in a house. They bought a house and they lived in that house for almost 35, 40 years. And they were just as grateful for that house 30 years later as the day they bought it. I'd have been two weeks. It would have been the wrong house for me. You know what I mean? It's I just that way. It's just something about me. Stuff doesn't continue to ring my bell because of because I think what happens to me, and I never I, I didn't get this until I was talking to a guy that I was sponsoring. He said something, and all of a sudden the light went on. I think without ever realizing it, whatever I bring to me to make me whole, to make me satisfied and happy. On some subconscious level, I will compare what it feels like to have this job, this relationship, this house, to what it felt like to have five shots of tequila. Now I don't want the job no more. Now I don't want now that everything lets me down against that. It doesn't really do for me what that had done for me at one time. So what happens is I enter into a state of abstinence because I've been pummeled by alcoholism and I've been broken by this disease and I get it and I've got to quit and I'm determined not to drink. I, every time I came back into Alcoholics Anonymous, I, for years I thought the problem was I hadn't made up my mind enough. I hadn't made up my mind enough. I wasn't... I wasn't that just don't drink no matter what thing. I didn't have that going on strong enough. 
And the truth is that I don't have the power to just, I, I, my, I always drink no matter what. I don't have the power. Lack of power is my dilemma. And what happens is I, I put down the last drink and I come into a state of abstinence and I'm licking my wounds. And because it's fresh, the memory of the suffering humiliation has a lot of depth and weight in the beginning. Because the memory has a, the emotional, I mean, the emotions behind the memory haven't become vague yet. So it has a lot of impact. We all know what it's like to be two days sober. Oh, I'll never do this again. You know, we all get that. We've all been there. And if, if, my, if my abstinence hung on a balanced scale, when I first get sober, the memory of the pain and humiliation has a lot of depth and weight. And it would weigh that balanced scale down. Now, on the other side are some feelings of restless, irritable discontent, low-level depression, but... But really, nothing is yet compared to this, man. I don't know if I'm homeless. I don't know what's going to happen. It's awful, awful. But as time goes on, one of two things start to happen is the further I get away from the last drink, the vaguer and the hazier the memory of the pain is. And this gets, and this gets lighter and lighter. And the more pronounced the feelings of restless, irritable, and discontent because I'm sober now. And I'm working hard. And nobody gets the sacrifices I make. And nobody realizes how they're not doing it right. And aren't I the, am I the only one here that does it right? And can't people understand? And it's just, it's like a pressure cooker building up. The more restless, irritable, and then the scales start to tip. And when you get a guy right about here, hasn't completely tipped yet, but it's going. You can put that guy on a lie detector and say to him, as I've seen guys right before they drink again. And say to them, do you know you're an alcoholic? you ever think you're going to drink again? And they will swear, I'm never going to touch that stuff again. And they won't, according to them at that moment. They'll say they're telling the truth. And then three days later, it tipped a little bit more. And the insanity of the first drink comes into play when all of a sudden, the emptiness and vacancy in here much outweighs the knowledge of how I shouldn't do this. And all of a sudden... It seems like a good idea again. And at that time, guys like me drink again. And that is a dynamic that I, I experienced for seven and a half years as a relapser in Round Alcoholics Anonymous from 1971 to 1978 when I finally got sober. I did that over and over and over again. Over and over again to the point of su- trying to commit suicide at the very end because I couldn't take it no more. That brings us to page 30, the beginning of more about alcoholism. And some of you are probably sitting here and thinking, no, no more about alcoholism. Enough, enough, enough. All right. You've, you've blunged me into readmitting I'm an alcoholic. Well, the book spends a lot of time on this. It says, most of us have been unwilling to admit we were real alcoholics. Isn't that weird? You know, it, that's really so true. I, if, if you were to poll a thousand members of Alcoholics Anonymous sober over, sober over five years, they would unanimously agree on three propositions. One is that they would be able to look back in their life to a time now that they can see, man, when I was, when I was 22 years old, I was definitely an alcoholic, and yet when I was 22 years old, I would have swore to you I wasn't and believed it. The second thing they would unanimously agree on 
is that for some reason they've gone to great lengths to keep from getting to that admission and keep from coming to AA. I mean, look at the stuff we try instead of coming to AA. I mean, we are the, I mean, we are the backbone of the self-help industry. I mean, we, we're the guys that buy the books and go to the seminars and sit in the sweat lodges that... That you know that uh, just we do it all. We're the backbone of that. We frantically, f- obsessively trying to fix ourselves so we don't have to go to AA. <laughs> and the third thing that we would unanimously agree on is that this is the best thing that ever happened to us. Isn't that crazy? That most of us don't want to admit the thing that will change our life the most. And we don't want to come to the place that will change our life for the most, for the best. And then every one of us, after you're here for a few years and you work the steps, you, you always say, you always say this, we all say the same thing. God, I wish I'd have done this years ago. <laughs> but if you'd have washed my feet years ago, I was digging in. I, you, got, you're trying, I, you can't get me to do it. Because I don't know what's good for me. I can't manage my own life. No person likes to think he is bodily and mentally different from his fellows. I am bodily and mentally different. We talked about the phenomenon of craving. I will always have that. I've watched, I, I spend a lot of time in the trenches. I, I have a lot of commitments in institutions on Skid Row and the mission and in the detox and the county jail. And I see on a regular basis guys sober. There's not a week that goes by I don't see somebody over 10 years sobriety that drank again. Not, not a week. And, it's all, and I'll tell you, that phenomenon of craving, it doesn't matter if you're 50 years sober, it waits for you. You can't get spiritual enough to not have that. You can't. It's just the, but yet, the, the, the funny thing about AA is we don't, we don't spend any time directly assaulting the, the drink. What we do is, Scott talked about it a little bit, we treat the spiritual malady, and as we become more whole, it never occurs to us to drink, right? It's we attacked alcoholism from the flank. I, I had one of my favorite speakers used to say, used to say, I just kept quitting drinking and quitting drinking, and every time I quit drinking, I would go end up going on the worst drunk I was ever on. And he said, he said, he said you know, this quitting drinking is killing me, <laughs> right? And that's how successful we are quitting drinking. We're bodily different and we're mentally different. And I know that in step 10 it says that sanity will have returned and all that stuff. But I'll tell you something. I, I'm sober almost just about 26 and a half years. And I, don't, I am suspect of my own perception and my own thinking. That's why I got a sponsor. Um, you, you get me afraid or anxious. I, my, my view of reality is not to be trusted. Really. And I, I think it's the... the, the the greatest thing I know is that I'm like that. Because then I can protect, I, I can have protect me from me. Right? We all know about people like Jim Jones and, and people who, who grow away, that think they're unto themselves, the answer, with them and God alone. Um, I know that I'm suspect of my own perception and I can't trust it. And I don't think like normal people, really. You get me afraid. I, don't, I make leaps in logic normal people never make. You know, I go. I don't get headaches. I get brain tumors. You know, I go. <laughs> right? How many people in this room have ever been convinced over more than five times they had cancer that they didn't have? Anybody want to? Yeah. <laughs> right. I used to have this going joke with my doctor. I had this doctor that was in AA for a number of years, and I used to. He used to come in. I'd come in for a physical, or I'd have the flu or something. He'd say, "What's wrong?" 
Well, it looks like the flu, but I think it's a brain tumor making me imagine I have the flu. And he'd laugh about that. And then one time I went in for a physical, and he wasn't there, and his partner was there. And his partner said, what do you think's wrong with you? I think, I think it's a brain tumor again. And he says, really? He, he got all excited. I said, I said, no, 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 I'm just kidding. Said, well, why would you say that? Well, I couldn't explain it to him. It was, he didn't see the humor in it. And I, I just wanted to say, where's that other doctor? <laughs> I'm bodily and mentally different from my fellows. And I'm glad to know that. I'm glad to know what I got. That this spiritual malady, when I get a little out of sorts, and I'm having a spiritual bad hair day, I can't trust my perception. I call my sponsor. I talk to people in Alcoholics Anonymous. I try certain spiritual disciplines um, because I'm that way. Therefore, it is not surprising that our drinking careers have been characterized by countless vain attempts to prove we could drink like other people. The idea that somehow, someday, he will control and enjoy his drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. The persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Many of us pursue it to the gates of insanity or death. The idea that under the right set of circumstances, if I was ever in enough emotional pain, under, if, if I ever really got my life to, if under the right set of circumstances that I once again could enjoy, could reap the ease and comfort, the sense of, <sighs> the feeling of connectedness to people, the, everything that I once reaped in alcohol, I could jumpstart the party, and I can do it with enough control to keep the damage down to something I can live with. And I'll tell you, as long as I was a victim of that illusion, I never could get all the way in here because I didn't have to. I had a back door out of Alcoholics Anonymous that if abstinence ever got uncomfortable enough, I can go drink something or take something or I can go scratch that itch and get away with it. And as long as I had that back door... I'm not a I'm not a tough guy. I don't tough it out when it gets to, when the, my emotions start putting the screws to me. I take the back door, right? And I always take the back door. I'm not a tough guy. I'll put it off for a while. I will, I'll get like a, a a mule in a hailstorm and I'll hunker down and take it for a little bit, but eventually, I'm going for the relief, because that's what self obsessed, self centered, self focused people do that are always taking their emotional pulse and and obsessed with how they feel. So I always do that. And I drink again. And I drink again because I have a back door out of Alcoholics Anonymous. And then it goes on to say, we learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were real alcoholics. That we were alcoholics. This is the first step in recovery. I, I like that better than chapter 5 where it says we admitted we were powerless over alcohol dash Separate thought that our lives had become unmanageable. Fully concede to my innermost self. There's a big difference between fully conceding to my innermost self, that place right in here where there's no chatter, that's not cognizant, where you just know, you accept. There's a big difference between that and admitting. You put me in a treatment center, in a group setting, where there's counselors looking at me, I'll admit just about anything for your approval. 
It doesn't mean I fully conceded to my innermost self. And I can even sell myself the own bill of goods that it's probably true on some intellectual level. But that is a big difference between that and fully conceding to my innermost self. And you know how you can tell the difference? Watch my feet. When I got out of the treatment center, I didn't act like someone who really bought that I was powerless and couldn't manage my own life. I started attacking life like a guy who could. So my feet made a liar out of me every time. I could say the words, oh yeah, I'm powerless over alcohol, my life's unmanageable, and then I would proceed to live like I didn't believe any of that. And then this, this next delusion is really what takes a lot of guys out that have long-term sobriety. It says the delusion that we are like other people, people who don't have alcoholism. I think that's what they mean. The delusion that we are like other people or presently maybe like other people has to be smashed. And I don't know what it is about us, this obsession to not have what we have. This idea that it's al- like it's alcoholism, not alcoholism, as if I can outgrow this, as if I can, I can hone myself into such a state of spiritual perfection. I'm no longer alcoholic. I no longer need a sponsor. I no need, longer need to help newcomers. I no longer need commitments and meetings. I no longer need God's grace. I no longer need to clean house, to be transparent. As if after a period of time, None of that applies to me like it did when I was new. And I watch this dance of death, this walk of death. I've watched it for over 25. I've watched it myself for several years and then over 26 years since I've been sober. Guys that go in, come out of detox and, and I've, I've sponsored some of them. And on a scale of 1 to 10 of willing and acting like they were really powerless, they would get a 10. And then three years later, they got a job and a relationship and they're feeling really good. And their life is shoring up a little bit. And they don't, it's easy to start to get a feeling like there really isn't as much of a problem here as there was in the beginning. And then at seven or eight years, maybe they're down to never calling their sponsor, or calling occasionally and going to one or two meetings a week. And they don't have time to work with newcomers. And, and God has become, it's, it's, their conscious relationship with God has become an unconscious relationship it's theoretical it's hypothetical now it's it's there but you know it's there's no presence in their life and there's no relationship with their sponsor and and then it's maybe eight or ten years or 15 years they eventually pick up a drink again and you hear them in detox and they say the most bizarre things you've ever heard there was a guy funny one of the funniest ones was a guy 17 years sober and he drank again and he's in detox and he wants to share because the disease progresses while you're, while you're sober, and the thing that progresses the most is the ego. So he's, he's in detox, and he wants to straighten out the people from the outside that came in, right? He wants to explain it to them and everything, right? He's become the I know guy. So, so he wants to share, and he, he says, he goes on with all this nonsense, and then he says the funniest thing he's ever said. He said, and I don't know why I drank again. You know, I had a, a cup, I had a house that was worth a couple hundred thousand dollars. I had new two new cars in the garage that were paid for, a wife and kids that adored me, and a great job. I don't know why I drink again. As if all of that crap was a treatment for alcoholism. I wanted to smack him. Right? If you had a diabetic that went into a diabetic coma and came out of it and said, 
I don't know why I went into a diabetic coma. I had a new car. I mean, <laughs> right? right? You go, what? What are you, a nutcase? And this guy was serious. He, as if he shouldn't have drank again because he had everything he wanted in life. Right? That's crazy. If that, if, if that were the case, then rich people would never have a problem with alcoholism. They never, right? That's nuts. The delusion that we are like other people, or presently maybe, has to be smashed. It has to be smashed. The only way I can... I, I thank God for a... I have a hard sponsor. And I have guys that I sponsor. And I have accountability to both of them. And if I start acting like a guy who doesn't think he has as much alcoholism as I used to, man, i got it coming at me from both directions. i got the guys I sponsor and say, what's, you know, what's with you? Where's your, why aren't you at your commitment down at Skid Row? Why aren't you over here? Why aren't you doing... And then i got my sponsor that that I have to hide it from because he'll do the same thing to me, right? The delusion that we're like other people has to be smashed. We alcoholics are men and women who have lost the ability to control our drinking. We know that no real alcoholic ever recovers control. All of us felt at times we were regaining control, but such intervals, usually brief, were inevitably followed by still less control, which led in time to pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. We are convinced to a man that alcoholics of our type, and Bill uses this phrase throughout the whole book, alcoholics of our type. This, was, this book was written for chronic alcoholism. It's written for the people who relapse again. It's not written for the problem drinkers who when you quit drinking, your problem's over. It's written for the chronic alcoholics. Alcoholics of our type are in the grip.